you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up to him. They took his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Christ is risen. Hey, this section over here, well done, nice, awesome. Hey, so good to have you at Easter Sunday. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name is Nick. I get the joy of being the lead pastor of this church. As Pat said, a church that God is building to know Jesus and make Jesus known, which makes us particularly excited on Easter Sunday. Uh, And so today we are going to dive into why we should get excited about Easter Sunday. What is this Easter Sunday all about Whether you are a regular at church or this is your first time in a long time or the first time ever, uh, we're so so glad that you're here and we hope that it is a blessing for you. Uh, We're about to enter into the Bible reading that we just had to find out a little bit more about what took place on the very first Easter Sunday. So I'm going to pray for us uh, as we open the Bible uh, and then we're going to unpack what God has to say for us today. So let me pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for the empty tomb of Easter Sunday, and we thank you for what it represents, and we pray right now, Lord, that you would open our eyes, you would soften our hearts, you would open our ears to understand what it means, not just for history, not just for humanity, but what it means for me, what it means for us in our life today. And so be with us now, we pray, and make Jesus big, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this Easter, we are pivoting our exploration of the Easter events around a couple of themes. And on Good Friday, we explored the the way the Bible talks about Jesus as the Lamb, Jesus the Lamb. And today we're going to skip ahead to the end of the Bible where it uses the language or the imagery of Jesus being a lion. And so today we're going to talk about Jesus the lion. And it brings to mind one of my favorite stories in all of literature, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Uh, There is a dramatic moment in the book where Aslan, the great lion, 
and the children and the animals of Narnia are standing around, and they're standing around with, with those who have turned away from Narnia, including the white witch who leads them. And they're having a conversation. Uh, the witch is demanding justice for the treachery of young Edmund, who gave in to temptation and sided with her against his brothers and sisters and against all of Narnia, especially Aslan. And Aslan is walking with the witch off to have a private conversation and then they return and they declare the matter settled. Later on, the children sense that there's something hanging over them and it's revealed that Aslan has agreed to give up his life in Edmund's place to satisfy the deep magic of Narnia and pay its penalty. And then later that night, we read of Aslan climbing a mountain by himself. And when he gets to the top of that mountain, he's sneered at, he's scoffed at, he's bullied by all the rebellious animals, uh, including the witch. And he lays down his life on the stone table. There he dies. And in many ways, that part of the book is very similar to the events of Good Friday, but it is only half the Easter story. Silent Saturday has come and gone. There is a breath of fresh air on the morning of Easter Sunday. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off on Friday. For where we are in the story, death has its man. The lion is in the tomb, dead and buried outside Jerusalem. And so we're going to pick up from Matthew 28, uh, what we had just read out for us. It says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And so Jesus was hanging dead on a cross on Friday The Friday night to Saturday night is the Jewish Sabbath, which has passed. And now two of Jesus' most faithful supporters, two Marys, in their grief, are walking toward the tomb, responding to the death of their friend, their Lord. And they're there to pay their respects. They're there to care for the body. And they're there to mourn the events that have just passed by in the last 48 hours. And I'm sure that in this moment, all of us could relate in some sense to these Marys because death, like them, has an impact on us all. That for all of us, death is a great interruption which disrupts our life and our relationships. And perhaps those of us have felt that stung of relationships ended too soon because of death. Death is a divider, the great intruder into the world that separates our very being from the material and the immaterial. Death is a great insult to us because it reminds us that we come from dust and to dust we shall return. And death, therefore, is the great enemy. It pursues us, some of us quicker than others. It's out to get us, to, to haunt us. And the fear of it drives us and our lives. This is why the Bible, elsewhere, talks about the fear of death leading us into lifelong slavery. Because death haunts us. It shapes us. It changes us. It motivates us. Death is the most powerful force in the world that we cannot control, and so we try to control everything else to avoid it. And so death is the great intrusion into the world. 
Because when we meet death, we sense that the world was not meant to be this way. And no doubt these women, on the way to see and take care of the body of their master that they had followed for several years now, they were stricken with the thought of how it was not meant to end this way. Because Jesus had spoken about death. Spoken about how he had the power of death. Spoken about how he had come to save. And they thought, this is the one. And yet here he is, dead and buried. And so the question is, how do we handle the great intrusion into our world that is death? How do we respond to death? Something that has a 100% strike rate for all of humanity. American writer David Foster Wallace, he wrote about how the biggest problem we have as humans is that absolutely everything we experience in our life, we experience in light of our own personhood or through the lens of our own personhood. That by default, we are therefore deeply self-centered because my immediate experience of everything that passes through my life supports the assumption that I'm at the center of it because the rest of life, the world is experienced in front of me. You guys right now are in front of me. The world is to my left, to my right, behind me. Other people's thoughts have to be communicated to us. Our thoughts are right there, inside us, immediate, loud, and present. He says, there is no experience you've had where you were not the absolute center of. The whole world is either right there before you. And so the way we're wired means that when we come to something like death, this, this painful, hard intrusive reality, well, inevitably, we're going to be confronted with the thought of our own death that is coming for us. And so usually, we've got to respond to that. We've got to deal with that reality. And often in our modern world, we respond to it by trying to ignore it, to find as many distractions as possible as we can that we not face our own mortality. And our world today is set up in that direction, that we might be as distracted as possible. Probably like everyone else in the last couple of weeks, uh, all of us encountered Slapgate. Everyone aware of what Will Smith did to Chris Rock at the Oscars a couple of weeks ago. Chris Rock pushed a little bit too hard, a little bit too personal. He's a comedian after all, and Will Smith would not stand it. And so breaking into the pomp and the celebrity of the Oscars came Will Smith's right-hand sense of justice. And I was struck by what another comedian, Russell Brand, said when he was commenting on the slap of what happened on that Oscar night. He said, when I saw that, I felt like, oh no, the bubble cannot sustain itself. See, the Oscars is a kind of pageant, a celebration, a certain set of values which cannot sustain themselves. I felt the seeping encroachment of the real world crept into the Oscars. The presence of the Ukrainian conflict, the awareness of the last two years of a pandemic, the sense of a broken and vicious culture could not be kept at bay. Even with all the sequins and the velvet and the celebration, it slipped in in the form of a slap. And so he's making the point there that how we handle the serious in our world is often by distracting ourselves with the superficial. There's no amount of glitz, no amount of glamour, no amount of wealth, no distraction can cover up these realities of life. They will inevitably slip in. 
And perhaps in this room, our distractions perhaps aren't so superficial as the Oscars. Perhaps not so obviously self-centered as wealth and, and fame. But we all use things for therapy. Maybe it's a life of moral uprightness. A busy family life driven by the hope that our kids will fulfill our unmet ambitions. Professional success. Maybe even we're doing it this morning, through uh, religiosity. All good things, but all in our modern world can be used to get in the way of our ability to front up to the reality, the harsh realities of life and death. Now, the Bible tells us why death feels like an intrusion. Because it is. Death is an intrusion into the world. The Bible tells us that the world was made good and humanity was created as the the capstone, the, the masterpiece of God's creation. Very good. And we were created that we might live in relationship with Him and under Him look after all of creation, steward the world. But the self centeredness of our first parents, Adam and Eve, they decided it wasn't, that wasn't a good plan and they wanted to run with their own plan and that caused a fracture. And so rebellion broke into the world. What we call sin broke into the world and with it came judgment and intrusion, death. And so we live in a world that still feels like so good, very good, so much to enjoy and celebrate and cheer and clap about, but everything tarnished by being broken. And most powerfully, ourselves broken. Captive, subject to death. And here is Jesus, the Messiah, the one who had so much promise and hope involved even in that very first initial creative moment, himself dead, dead and buried. And let's look at how the story unfolds, because the women walk up to the tomb expecting to meet some guards and have them roll away the stone to find Jesus' body, and instead they meet an angel who's done all the work for him, for them. And he says to them, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And so we have this remarkable claim here, this historical claim. That in real time, in real space, at a real part of the world, some about 1989 years ago, Jesus really did die and it really did live. He rose from the dead. And there's some evidence in the, the passage itself, the text itself, that strikes us as perhaps lending evidence to this being a little bit more than just some kind of concoction of religious fantasy. First, there's the fact that there's two women who were the first eyewitnesses, because at the time, women weren't 
meant to be. They weren't allowed to be witnesses in court. And so if you're going to make a story up, you don't put two women at the center of the story who saw it first. Second is the account that they saw Jesus risen physically. It tells us that they took hold of his feet. And we know that in the weeks that were to follow, some 500 people took hold of Jesus. 500 people saw Jesus risen in the flesh. Some of those people were initially doubting, and they were convinced by seeing Jesus in the flesh, touching his skin, seeing his scars. And so one way to easily confirm that, hey, this was all a hoax, is to take the people to the publicly identifiable tomb and point out, hey, no, there's a body. Here's the dead body. But no one has been ever able to find the dead body because Jesus was walking around in it. And thirdly, is what happens to the disciples when they see the risen Jesus. Because there's a complete transformation and this radical, newfound sense of loyalty. We'd heard at Good Friday that Peter had had just denied Jesus three times, only 48 hours prior. And yet after seeing the risen Jesus, he would go on to live 40 years of faithfulness, boldly, clearly preaching the risen Jesus, even to the authorities who would eventually crucify him too because of it. Charles Colson uh, was an American public servant in the 1970s and he served as uh, a special counsel to President Richard Nixon, especially during the Watergate scandal. And he once was described as the evil genius of an evil administration. It was said that he would walk over even his own grandmother, if necessary, in order to get things done. And so in the midst of the Watergate scandal, Colson happened to read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and he became a Christian. And because of his newfound convictions, he pled guilty to everything that he felt responsible or culpable for, even in spite of being told that the judge would drop the charges if he didn't plead guilty. And so Colson's story is profound, but I bring that up to share a, a quote from him about the resurrection. He said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proves it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And so many people die for incorrect causes all the time, I'm sure. But no one dies for something where they know for sure this is a hoax or this is a lie. And we see this transformation even in the women themselves. Because as they approached the tomb, they were stricken with grief. And as they left the tomb, they were stricken with fear and great joy. And this is the, the beauty of Easter Sunday. This is the beauty of the resurrection. This is the hope for you and for me that extends beyond the historical reality of the moment 2,000 years ago into your life and mine. Because they know that the resurrection means more than just that Jesus gets to hang out with us for another couple of weeks. No, it deeply impacts their experience of life and death. And it makes who Jesus had said he was. It confirms the reality that Jesus is who he said he was. Throughout his life, Jesus consistently confronted death. There's one story in particular where one of his best friends, Lazarus, is sick and he hears he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a world away. He's, he's four days away. 
And he hears that Lazarus is sick, and they say, come, Jesus, come quickly. We know that you can heal. Come. And by the time Jesus gets to Lazarus, Lazarus has already passed away. And there there's two sisters of Lazarus who are stricken with grief. And yet Jesus comes up to them. Lazarus is dead, and he's also buried in a tomb. And yet Jesus says to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And this is a, a common thing for Jesus to say. He spoke often about death and often in the context of his own handling or, or authority or power over death. And so Jesus knew what he was going to do. He knew that he was going to come to take on death himself. And knowing how that would go down, that he would rise. He was eager to tell everybody he could, hey, believe in me. Trust in me. I'm going to be who I say I am. I'm going to defeat death. Death will not have the last word. And so into our own modern world, into your life and mine, Jesus says the same thing. Because all of us are going to face death. And yet Jesus tells us that in Him we have hope. Jesus' resurrection, that first Easter Sunday, means that you and I don't need to fear death, don't need to avoid death, don't need to distract ourselves away from the reality of death. No, Jesus has conquered it in His own death as He took up His life again. And so because of that, Jesus offers us a new kind of life. A life that's lived not primarily first for ourselves, but for Him. A life where we don't seek to experience everything for our own fulfillment. We don't seek to experience everything through our own personhood, but rather through this lens of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us. And so if you are new to church today, you should know that this is what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not about living a life of moral performance. None of us can. All of us admit that we will never measure up. Christianity is not about building a life around the strength of your religious devotion. I'm a pastor and I know very often I don't have that devotion. I can't consistently and strongly devote enough. No, Christianity is about Jesus and what He has done for you, what He has done for us. He is who He said He would be, someone we can trust, someone we can follow, someone who is worthy of our lives. And He invites all of us to humble ourselves by admitting that we've made our lives all about us and to instead trust in Him who paid the penalty for what we deserve in our place and to trust in him having risen from that penalty death and offering us new life eternal life in the story i mentioned at the top the lion the witch and the wardrobe aslan is there on the stone table laying dead and buried and he is being mourned over by the two girls and as they are grieving nature itself starts to change there's a glimmer of light as the sun is starting to rise and the girls turn away from Aslan to turn to the rising sun. And behind them, they hear this huge crack as something breaks and something has shifted. The stone table on which Aslan died is broken and he stands alive 
And so they ask him, aren't you dead, Aslan? And he says, not now. And they ask how this could all happen. And Aslan says, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still. And in Jesus' resurrection, we see something similar. That though in our sin or self-centered brokenness, though the power of death was brought into the world, causing all the the havoc and the destruction that, that all of us in some way have been touched by, there is a power deeper still. There is a power deeper still, the power of God Himself, who by His own volition, His own choice, His own desire came into the world in Jesus to take it on submitting to to death himself, laying his life down in death himself, but for the very purpose of putting death to death and defeating death for us so that we might be free to be reconciled to him. And this leads us to the imagery that we see in the Scriptures and that Nikki read out for us, the imagery of Jesus as a lion. Because we heard read out for us from Revelation chapter 5. And as the women worshipped in this moment with Jesus, so in Revelation we get this picture of people worshipping, worshipping around the the throne room of God. It's a picture of the future, a picture of heaven. It's full of people who have passed through death into the next life. And at the beginning, the, the people are weeping because it's complete hopelessness. They're weeping, looking for somebody who can rescue them from death. Open the scroll. Someone cries out, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, Jesus, we know, was was from the tribe of Judah. And here we hear that, that, that Jesus was the one worthy to go toe to toe with death, our great enemy. And to conquer. And so the picture in Revelation then expands to what this means. And it expands to, to this point where we're seeing myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands of people from every tribe and every tongue boys, girls, women, men singing together. Kind of like that. <laughs> Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power. And wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so, those people who had no hope, now they're rejoicing. Now they're singing. They're overjoyed and they're celebrating. And they're not overjoyed and celebrating because they did enough in their life to get where they are. They're not overjoyed and celebrating because they were likable enough or well put together enough or successful enough or religious enough. No, they're overjoyed and they're celebrating because Jesus was enough. And Jesus has come to defeat death and rise again. And that is the invitation that Easter presents to all of us, to know this freedom from death, to know this forgiveness from our self-centeredness, to know this hope in the midst of hopelessness, to know this joy in worshipping Jesus, the Lion. We can be reconciled with our Creator. We can experience, like the women, this this great combination of, of fear and great joy. 
as we submit ourselves to the one who conquered death and does away with our sin. And so that is the offer of Easter Sunday to you. That is the invitation of Jesus the Lion to you in your life today. The God who made you loves you so much that He doesn't want you whittling your life away in distraction until death, but has rather come to confront it head on for you in your place so that you might be brought to Him, that you might be reconciled with the God who fearfully and wonderfully fashioned you together who has a purpose and a meaning for your life. And part of that purpose and meaning is attached to you knowing Him, having a relationship with Him. Jesus is the one who has come to live perfectly, die sacrificially, and rise victoriously. So we're going to land the plane on Easter Sunday. And I want to give an opportunity for everybody to know this Jesus and know the life that He offers. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray that we would experience what Jesus promises we can experience. That He is the resurrection and the life, the one who has conquered. And so I'm going to pray that we would experience the new kind of life we can have when we come to Jesus in that way and know Him as the early disciples did. Uh, But before I do, I want to ask you specifically if you want me to include you in the prayer that I pray. And so if I could, let me ask if all of us uh, could close our eyes in preparation to to pray. And let me ask you if you are an adult, a child, woman, man, boy, girl, whoever. Uh, Let me know right now just by lifting up your hand whether you want me to pray for you uh, right now and include you in this prayer. Amen. Awesome. Well, everybody with their hands raised, let me pray for you and let me pray for us. Almighty God, we praise you for the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that even though we were in a a hopeless position, even though we were stuck and and mired in our sin and our self-centeredness, you have come. And you have come because of your love, your mercy, your grace for the world that you made and for us, the people that you have fashioned together. And so we thank you so much for the power that you have displayed in conquering death, that you entered into our world to defeat our greatest enemy. And so we ask now that you would enter into our lives. And so I pray particularly for everybody who uh, lifted their hands just now. Lord, help them, help us know you, not only as Lord over death, but Lord over our lives. And so, Lord, we repent of the ways that we have fallen short and turned from you. And we praise you that you have run after us and turned toward us to win us back. And so help us now to trust in you and to let this Easter Sunday be a watershed moment for the ways that we approach our life as we do so through the reality of your life, your death, and your resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.